0: Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at TrinityHarborChurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Our sermon text occurs in 1 Samuel 28, and while you're turning there, I'm going to uh, do a couple of things. One, uh, on a personal note, I wanted to say thank you and how encouraged I am that as we've transitioned to everyone really participating in the nursery ministry, how it has gone uh, very smoothly, and how now people who were covering many spots and sometimes might make it into the worship service or Sunday school once a month are able to come much more frequently. I think you've made sacrifices. Some of you are fine with that, doing that. Some of you probably don't like it. But by virtue of doing it, you've really freed some people up who were carrying very heavy loads. And that is a beautiful thing about our community. And I wanted to let you know, too, that I don't believe, in terms of a notion of pastoral leadership, that I can ask something of you that I'm not willing to do. So I wasn't in Sunday school last week because I was in the nursery. And the pastoral staff is on the nursery schedule. And so we look forward to participating in that with you in uh, caring for the little ones. Secondly, um, I'm going to pray for the sermon. But as many of you know, one of our brothers and friends, uh, Dave McIlrath, has been held up in Ethiopia. He does business there, and doing business there is a complicated venture. And so we want to pray together that he comes home uh, very, very quickly. Uh, will you pray with me? Father, we confess our trust in You because there's nothing else to do. Uh, We pretend to control an image and as if we can plan out our days and they will go simply according to our plans, but life teaches us the opposite so frequently. And so we pray that as we trust in You, You would help us to trust in You all the more. And we pray for Dave, our brother, that You would give him ample trust in You and that You would providentially work in the circumstances that exist, to bring him home safely and quickly. We thank you for your protective hand upon him, and we pray that you would bless his household in his absence, and may we delight in your glory and power over such circumstances as you bring him home. Father, as we turn to your word, as we turn to a story of of one who would not trust in you, and continue down a path of brokenness as a result, we pray that it would be warning to us and that we would learn from it. We ask for Your Spirit to do this in Christ's name. Amen. The passage this morning, as I said, is 1 Samuel 28. We'll start in verse 3. And if you're able, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel... And they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. and His heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. The woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, "'Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up?' Saul answered, "'I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do.' Samuel said, "'Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy?' Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him. And he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. For the vast portion of this fall, we're considering a a new sermon series that is focusing on the theme of mission. By mission, what we mean is that God Himself is a God who is engaged in mission. As the world was cast into sin, God engaged in a mission to redeem the world and its people. And we also mean by, when we talk about us considering mission and engaging in mission, that God has chosen us, He has extended His love to us, He has rescued us not so that we would simply sit by and live the lives we want to live and wait for Jesus to return. He has rescued us that we might participate in His ongoing mission. And to the extent that we participate in God's ongoing mission is to the extent that we really are who He desires for us to be. In order to get at this, what we are doing is taking one clause of our mission statement two weeks at a time and looking first at a negative example of someone who doesn't understand the clause, and then positively at someone who does. The past two weeks, we were looking at the first part of our mission statement, which our mission at Trinity Harbor is to be transformed by God's grace. All of our transformation begins and really ends with God's grace. And as we go out into the world and seek to participate in God's mission, it is all uh, enabled by, strengthened by, God's grace, the extension of that grace. But we've also said in the next clause of our sermon statement that we are committed to healing the broken. Both experiencing healing for ourselves and seeing healing happen for other people. Sin is profoundly destructive. Right? And God is not interested simply in the debt of sin being forgiven. He is interested in seeing the negative results, the destruction of sin being undone. And that's why we're committed to this idea of healing the broken. As we participate in God's mission, not only do we see the broken healed, but we experience greater healing ourselves because that healing comes by virtue of participating in God's mission. This morning we're talking about a warning. When we decide not to participate in God's mission, when we seek to handle the sicknesses in our lives our own way, then there is only greater destruction. And this morning we will see this in the story of Saul. Crisis reveals to us what we believe will heal us. Right? We're going to seek something for healing in the midst of crisis, something to fix the situation of crisis. When we see that which we believe, thinks what we think will heal us, that also reveals to us what we think our sickness really is. All right? This is what we're after today. Any crisis, small or big in your life, is going to cause you to remedy that crisis, to seek healing. And as you seek healing, you're going to see, oh, this is what I really believe will remedy my crisis, and what you choose as the healing factor in your crisis really reveals what you understand your sickness to be. And in both cases, Saul will get it wrong. He will misidentify what will heal him, and it only reveals that he grossly misunderstands his sickness. And if we don't understand these lessons from the story of Saul this morning, we are simply doomed to go down his path. So let's look at the story of Saul in 1 Samuel 28. Uh, It begins with Saul finding himself in a pretty desperate situation. We learn that Saul has gathered all of Israel. He's facing the Philistines, and he's terrified at the prospect. The Philistines are looking stronger. Look at verse 5. It says he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Saul is scared to death. He's outmatched and at the same time he's been rejected as king by God. He knows he's in desperate straits. So what did Saul do in his fear? Did you catch it as we went through? Saul actually does exactly what he's supposed to do. He inquires of the Lord. He seeks God's will and wisdom, but this time around, because Saul has disobeyed so many times, there's no answer, neither by the prophets, nor by the Urim, nor by dreams. God is not speaking to Saul. Of course, what would that do? It would make you more desperate. And so Saul decides that, well, if God isn't going to speak, then I'm going to pursue an answer to what I should do. You know, it also bears mentioning that Saul finds himself in his predicament with the Philistines having gathered particular strength because as he has been king, he should be defending the nation against the Philistines. But what has he actually been doing? He's been running around chasing after David, trying to kill him because he knows that God has appointed David to be king in his stead. And so this has allowed freedom for the Philistines and now Saul faces the situation of his own making by virtue of his lack of obedience which he is outmatched by the Philistines and needs some degree of wisdom. What's going to happen? How do I proceed? Should I fight or flee? Typically, God would give the answers to these questions, but now he's silent. So Saul saw a medium, someone with the power to communicate with the dead, to call up someone that they could be consulted. And Saul disguises himself and goes to this medium who's been identified in Endor, And he disguises himself. You think, why? You know, you might think, well, he knows he's made a decree that no one should be doing this, so he doesn't want to be recognized as Saul, so the woman will do it for him. But then you think, well, he's actually king and can just walk in and command her to do it and say there won't be any consequence for you. And so the disguise, I think, has a much greater degree, uh, much more to deal with, the shame that Saul has been experiencing throughout his life. Right here in 1 Samuel 28, did you notice at the beginning, the storyteller tells us that Saul had put all the necromancers and mediums out of the land. It's one of the few things that he did right, was actually to exile these people who are prohibited by God's law. It's forbidden to interact or communicate with the dead by virtue of these people. And so now he finds himself in desperation, going against what he'd actually done in righteousness. And as we look at Saul's story a little bit more broadly, we understand and see really that Saul is is someone who struggles with shame. Now, if you go back to the beginning of Saul's story, when he's being anointed by Samuel as king over Israel, God has chosen him to be this figure. They're having a big celebration in to do, and they can't find Saul. He's disappeared. And so God has to reveal to the people that Saul is hiding amongst the baggage afraid of what's going on, doesn't want to participate in order for him to be brought and be anointed. And in Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15, Samuel says something very interesting to Saul. As he's telling him that God has rejected him from being king for his disobedience, Samuel says to Saul, though, are you, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Hear what Samuel's saying. Part of your problem, Saul, is that you continue to continually see yourself through your own eyes. You think you're inadequate. You think you're little. You fail to see yourself as God sees you. And if you saw yourself as God sees you, you wouldn't be making the same mistakes in the same way. That is shame that Saul cannot see himself as God sees him. By not participating in God's mission, by constantly bucking it, Saul has decided that he doesn't really want any part of God and does not really desire to be healed by what God offers. His shame increasingly takes over for him, and shame is one of the things that afflicts us the most. It's one of the things that keeps us actually from being healed and growing in our relationship with God. It's becoming, as most social scientists think, far more pervasive in our culture. Some have even called it an epidemic. If you are human, you have shame. And shame is the root of much sin that we engage in. Much resistance to participate in the mission of God. As Ed Welch, who's a pretty renowned and respected Christian counselor, put it, look under anger, fear, even guilt, and you will find a root of shame. Brene Brown is a professor at the University of Houston Graduate School in Social Work. And she's got a couple of TED Talks that are well worth watching. She spent a decade researching shame and empathy. And she refers to shame as the swampland of the soul and argues that shame has to be engaged in order for anyone to get beyond its debilitating effects. And she says shame is a gremlin, and it basically has two tracks that play over and over again. And the first track is that you are not... um, is that you are not good enough. And she says, that if you're able to get beyond that track, then the second track is, who do you think you are? I know who you are. Now, I've been challenged lately to think a lot about shame because we don't live really in a culture that historically has given a lot of attention to shame. In fact, our Christian tradition in the West has focused far more on guilt than it has on shame. So what is the difference between guilt and shame? Another thing we often do is say that the East countries in the East are characterized by shame and countries in the West are characterized by guilt. And there's some degree of truth to that, but it's also a bit of a misnomer because guilt and shame play a role in both cultures. The difference between guilt and shame is that guilt is mostly about behavior. Shame is about how you see yourself. It's about the individual. So if I'm feeling guilty, I might say... I'll say I made a mistake, and I said, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake, would you please forgive me? I am exercising, confessing guilt. I acknowledge that I did something guilty, I'm guilty that I did something, would you please excuse this behavior? When we start to think I am a mistake, then that is shame. Shame. And Ed Welch had something to say which made me realize how incredibly important this is. And I've experienced this for years, but I've never heard anybody put it this way. He says, if you want to talk to somebody under 30 about guilt, they will stare at you with blank eyes and like you are speaking a foreign language. And I have experienced that a lot. But, he says, if you start to talk to a group under 30 and say, you know, have you ever felt like you're a failure or that you're worthless or that you're not significant, he says, it's like you've deciphered a secret language amongst them. There's an enormous and pervasive shift going on in American culture, which is a shift in significantly that's from guilt to shame. And shame is becoming the new way uh, in which people are struggling. And shame is amazing. In many ways, shame is more destructive. Right? Shame is highly, highly correlated, according to Brown, with addiction, depression, anger, bullying, violence, suicide, and eating disorders. Guilt is not highly correlated with any of those. So we see in the human conscious, we have this amazing ability to, if we're distancing ourselves from a behavior, but when we start to, uh, those behaviors start to inform our own opinion of who we are, it becomes profoundly dysfunctional and destructive. And look, look at this list. Shame is highly cor- correlated with what? What do we see in Saul's life? Well, if we were to take a look at the story as a whole, we would see a lot of depression, a lot of anger, a lot of bullying, a lot of violence. And ultimately, Saul will fall on his sword for the injuries he's received and the failure he has against the Philistines. This is why it's important that we talk about shame. And shame is very different uh, based on gender. One of the really interesting things that... Um, brown points out is that you men and women feel shame the same way but we experience shame for completely different reasons so women first what causes you shame what what begs that voice that says I'm not worthwhile I feel exposed I want to hide I'm a failure I'm a mistake Ron says the, um, the best example that she's ever seen is the uh, Angel Lee commercial uh, from 1980. And I had to look it up. It's on YouTube if you want to go watch it later. It's a commercial for perfume. And the woman is, um, has everything together and is gorgeous and, and sprays some perfume on herself. And she says, uh, you know, I can uh, bring home the bacon cook it up in a pan, and never let you forget that you're a man. This is Anjali, the eight-hour perfume for the 24-hour woman. I think, what's a 24-hour woman? And then goes on to say, to the woman again, there's another phrase that says, yes, I can go to work, I can come home and read the, uh, the book to the kids, and I can make you shiver in bed. I thought, what does that mean? I have no idea. But this is Anjali the eight-hour perfume for the 24-hour woman. And so that resonates with all of Brown's studies, that the thing that brings a woman shame are all these competing uh, expectations upon their life. So many competing expectations that it's actually inhuman, impossible to meet them all. And so this is why the women, according to uh, these studies, experience shame as a, as a failure to, to meet these unattainable expectations. There was a study in which the question was asked, uh, what what do you need to practice to be a normal woman in American society? What do you think the answers were? Nice, thin, modest, and use all available resources for appearance. That's, That's how culturally we define womanhood. And shame results as a failure to meet many of these competing expectations. All right, now what about men? Brown tells a story. She had the most um, exceptional experience at a book signing. For the first four years, she was working on empathy and shame. She only researched women. And a man came up to her with several books at a book signing and said, this is for my wife and my daughters. Would you sign them, please? And uh, he said, I really like what you've written, but I find it interesting that you haven't written on men. And she said, yeah, well, I don't research men. And he said, well, isn't that convenient? Which well, got her attention pretty quickly. And she said, well, w- what do you mean by that? And I said, well, you're talking about about shame. He said, I'm going to take these books home to my wife and to my daughters, and they love them, but you know what? They would rather see me die on my white horse than fall off it. And it blew Brown away. And he said, men experience shame just as much as women do. And don't tell me it's the coaches and the teachers and all the expectations about that. He said, no one is harder on me than the women in my life. And I can't be vulnerable. Because I would be seen as a failure. And for all the competing expectations that women experience in shame, there is one for men. What is it? Not to be perceived as weak. That's it. And when we feel like we're perceived as weak, we engage and wrestle with shame. The same question was posed to men about what defines manhood, the norms of manhood in American culture in the West, and the answers were these. Emotional control, work is first, pursue status, and violence. Right, All the things that help us to keep feeling strong and powerful and not weak and vulnerable. But we've seen the dangers. I mean, Brown is saying shame is so profoundly uh, destructive. It's uh, it's one of the worst things that's going on in our world. And biblically, shame is a terrible aspect of the fall. It is one of the big monsters that must be defeated in some way. So Brown's an expert on shame. How is shame defeated? She says, if we're going to get out of this morass... We're going to have to start listening to one another and learning again to engage in empathy. She says, um, shame thrives when there's secrecy, silence, and judgment. It's like a petri dish that will just grow shame to exponential proportions. She says, but when you actually bring something out into the light, you realize that other people are experiencing similar things. And she says two of the most powerful words, and the English language are, are me too. And then it's in that bringing something out into the light and people too or more actually sharing those experiences that the strength of shame seems to be deflated and people are able to go forward in much healthier ways. I, uh, I like Brown's answer on some levels, but I find it terribly dissatisfying on others. Trying to think of times in my life when I when I felt shame, and there of course have been a lot of times where I felt shame. But one that came immediately to mind was in the summer of 1994. I was in New York City on a summer mission project, and um, it gathered college students from all over the country, and we were doing different projects each week in the in the New York City, whether it was working with the homeless or doing Vacation Bible School. And I I had been made the youngest uh, team leader. So I thought I was doing pretty good. I was, uh, I was, I was leading people to transform New York City with the glory of Christ. And one day we had a day off and we were kicking around the city, exploring New York City, and came upon a game that was being played on the streets. And it was a shell game. You all know the shell game, right? You got three shells. There's a red ball under one of the shells. You follow the shells. You pick the shell with the red ball. And you, you win. Well, so we're standing there watching the game casually, and, and it's going on. And I'm, I keep getting it right, and I think, I'm really good at the shell game. These, these guys' hands, they're not fast enough to fool me. And everybody around me keeps, they're guessing and betting money, and they're getting it wrong. So I think this is silly. I started thinking, you know, if I put money down, I'm going to win, and I can take everybody out to dinner and I'll be worshipped even more. This is a wonderful opportunity. And so I put money down, and the shell game went on, and I was like, oh, that was a little bit faster than the other times you did it, but I think it's this one, and of course, there was no ball under that shell. And immediate, it, was, it was a really funny experience, because in one second, several things, it, it took less than a second. And the first thing was I wanted to crawl into a hole and hide, because what I realized was, all of the people who were betting and losing were part of the scam, right? It was made to look easy, so a really foolish person from upstate New York, not living in the city, would participate and think that he could win, right? And so the immediate shame, so I, and I had actually, I wasn't carrying very much money, so i actually borrowed some money to put it down, right? So we went back to where we were staying later that afternoon, and I, I mean, I grabbed money and I paid everybody back. I said, yeah, I'm really sorry about this. Uh, can we just keep this to ourselves? <laughs> right? What? I wanted secrecy. I wanted to hide it because I was feeling so much shame by virtue of being so foolish. And that wasn't, I was not feeling guilt. I was not saying, oh, I did a foolish thing. I was experiencing shame. I am a fool. Do you see the difference? And, of course, it ate me up inside, and I, I allowed it to hide it because I thought, well, I'll just control the image and perspective and not let it get out and be a bigger story. And it just became worse as a result of that because right? I saw myself as a as a fool. That's the power of shame. It can be terribly destructive. Right? What if I had just come home that night and said, you know, you're not going to believe what happened today, How how foolish I was. I I played a shell game on the streets of New York City thinking I was savvy, and I got totally taken. And then you can see how part of that lets it out. And then maybe somebody might have said, yeah, me too, you know, I was playing this other game and I lost twice as much as you, and I think, phew, you're a bigger fool than I am. I feel much better now. That's you know, not the point of sharing, right? Okay. But again, it only gets me to the point of, of someone sharing in that and realizing that we're all broken We're all struggling in a broken world, and we all are given to pride and sin as I was. And this is the story we see in Saul. But Saul over and over again is trying to cover up up his shame, to cover up his sin. He's never sincerely pursuing God unless he needs something from him. And part of the reason that he does that is because he can never see him as God's anointed king. He cannot see him as God sees him. And the result is that he can only, by virtue of his own strength and muscle, by, by virtue of going and doing something forbidden by the law, I'll get the right answer from Samuel who's dead, but I'll get the right answer and I'll be able to move forward. And of course, it spirals out of control and it leads to nothing but his rejection by God and his death. And friends, we have to be honest and frank this morning that if you choose not to participate in the mission of God, you are choosing not only to experience God's healing, but you are also choosing to be rejected by God ultimately. Death is coming for us all. And if we choose not to participate in God's mission, ultimately we will be rejected. But the power of the good news of Jesus Christ is this. If I share with someone my shame and they say, me too, I feel better. But it has not ultimately redeemed or fixed the situation. I've still experienced shame. That thing isn't undone. This person experiences shame. And at the end of the day, all that another human being can do is exercise empathy on my behalf. And empathy is valuable and important, but it will never defeat shame. But you realize what happens in the cross. But as Paul tells us that God made Him who was no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might be found sinless. Do you understand that in the cross you sit down with Jesus and you say, Jesus, I am a fool and weak and have so much shame. And Jesus says, me too. It's the shame that came upon Him at the cross that the Father has to look away. And in that He can identify perfectly with what you have experienced. But not only identify as another human being would He's remedied it. He's taken it away and He's clothed you with splendor. And he's made you the brother or sister of a king, royal. and so the question is now will you believe who you are in Christ or will you continue like Saul to only see yourself as you see yourself? It's by going to Jesus and understanding who we are in him that shame is ultimately undone and we are ultimately healed. So what should you do with all that? How do you experience Jesus saying me too well It begins, one, by being frank with Jesus and taking your shame to Him and not trying to figure out and solve it your own. It begins by really repenting. And we've talked about that in previous weeks. Secondly, there is profound power in you going to a brother or sister and confessing something to them. And hear me well, we are going to be a church and are a church, I believe, very significantly that is not surprised by sin. Sin is pervasive. Sin is pervasive. And when someone comes up to you, you should not be surprised by what, by what they may want to tell you. But simply enter into their story and love them and try to hear and then, and then seek good counsel in terms of what it means to remedy that situation. And third, and I'm speaking particularly to you men, you know well that we are in, an, we are in a profound time of isolation for men, a lack of good friendships for men, And men experience significant levels of shame. And you can pretend that you're strong and powerful and all of that, and you will slowly be eaten alive from the inside out. We are not creating man time simply because we want to eat barbecue and throw horseshoes, although we want to do that. We're creating man time so that we start to spend more time together and start to develop the relationships that are necessary through which we can actually bring our shame to one another and receive empathy. Because it's in part that when we receive empathy from a brother and sister in Christ, we receive empathy from Jesus Himself. And Jesus is the one, when He says, Me too, is the one who not only sympathizes, but redeems and heals you. And it's that we experience as we come to His table this morning. Let's pray. Father, sin has twisted us desperately so that The shame that we experience, we would hide, we would bury, we would we would seek to think that we can control and manage it, and it devours. And so we pray that You would forgive us, but that You would help us. Lord Jesus, we come to You this morning, and we desperately need more of Your healing. And we know we get in the way of that healing, but we pray that You would make us a body, that we are not surprised by sin, nor are we afraid to share the shame that we have experienced and are experiencing, and that we would be a people of love and empathy to the degree that we would not be surprised. You are not surprised by our sin. Yet the grace that we receive from You, the forgiveness at the cross, and the restoration by being unified to Christ, Father, let that be the story that defines who we are. And out of that, for shame to be diminished. And yes, to have guilt for the ways in which we sin against You and a good guilt that it is. But never to believe the lies that we would tell ourselves, but rather to believe the truth that Jesus tells us, that we are now His brothers and sisters. Pray that that love would transform our hearts and that we would experience it even now as we come to His table. Amen.